Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on the morning of Friday, September 9th, 2022, our first podcast of the fall. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Uh, joining me, as always, is Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. Glenn, how are you today? Great, Tony. Thanks. How are you? Doing very well, doing very well. Glenn, I thought we could start with what unfortunately has become a perennial topic on this podcast, and that is high inflation and the Fed's response to it. So as you know, uh, each year, the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City has a conference it holds in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And by tradition, the current Fed chair attends that meeting and gives a talk about, uh, gives his or her thoughts on current monetary policy. And so uh, two weeks ago today, um, Chair uh, Jerome Powell gave that talk. And I thought it was very interesting that as he began to speak at 10 o'clock Eastern time, at the same time that the Fed released the printed text of his speech, the stock market took a dive. And as we talk about in both principles and money and banking, when we talk about the stock market, the stock market tends to move on news, right? That everything investors think they already know is reflected in prices. So when prices go down like that, it's typically as a result of news. So apparently investors thought they saw some news in what um, Powell was saying. And the discussion seems to be that he was indicating that the target for the federal funds rate might be higher and might be kept higher longer than they had thought. So let me ask you some general questions and what's likely to happen to inflation, do you think? The remainder of this year into next year, is the Fed following an appropriate policy? Is it doing too much? Is it not doing enough? And do you think it's likely the Fed achieves the so-called soft landing? that it manages to bring inflation down closer to its 2% target without causing a recession? Well, those are all really good questions, Tony. I expect if either one of us knew the exact answer to them, we would be wealthy uh, and be sitting <laughs> on, the, on the beach somewhere. The, the way I think about the speech, when you, you're talking about news uh, and kicking off with high inflation, Alan Greenspan once said that inflation isn't a problem if nobody's talking about it. So Greenspan never had in mind a 2% target, which is what the United States does using the um, PCE uh, measure of inflation. He had in mind that if inflation isn't part of a conversation, it isn't a problem. And, and we all know that one of the reasons we are concerned about inflation is everyone is talking. Every politician, every newspaper, uh, every man and woman on the street uh, who sees it in grocery stores until recently at the pump and, and, and so on. So I think Powell went in knowing he had to make a statement. This was a very short speech. Uh, you know, I, I watched it uh, on my computer because I, I didn't go this year. And I was thought he was just getting wound up. And then I saw from the printed text, he, he was done. And I think what he did in, in the language of, of you know, what we talk about in the book is, is, is try to reset expectations that we are, we the Fed, are very, very serious about the inflation target. He's made it clear that it's not just inflation generally, it is PCE, it is 2%. 
And that's where the Fed is going. So I saw the speech as being mainly aimed at expectations and credibility. He quoted Paul Volcker, a very notable and highly credible Fed chair, also Alan, Alan Greenspan. And I think the backdrop to your question is um, inflation has been too high. And, and we care not only because people are talking about it, Pache Greenspan, but we care because high and variable rates of inflation are a problem for households and firms. And the Fed has acknowledged over the past year or so that there are a mixture of supply and demand factors at work. To my mind, the Fed was paying maybe too much attention just to the supply factors and not enough to demand from its own policies, from fiscal policy uh, in the US. And I think the Fed has signaled now that it will do what it takes. And what I've said when I talk to people on Wall Street is, if you wanna tighten financial conditions, which is part of what monetary policy has to do to reduce inflation, you actually have to tighten financial conditions. And so what that would mean is moving the federal funds rate into an area where you do see asset price responses. The stock market got that exactly right. If you look at the planned uh, federal funds rate increases, we're now on a path to head toward 4%, which a year ago, nobody was talking about. So I, I do think that is gonna be important. I think underneath that to your soft landing question, is how the Fed should think about the path. Even if you accept the fact that inflation is too high and we need to have a tighter monetary policy, as we highlight in the text, Milton Friedman's famous expression of long and variable lags. So the decision that the Fed takes today doesn't show up tomorrow in the real economy, it shows up with long and variable lags. So there is a debate over whether the Fed could overshoot by trying to uh, work too hard to bring inflation down to 2%. I think, unfortunately, for the chair and for the Fed, lost Fed credibility in recent months means the Fed has to be hyper vigilant on inflation, which is just a long winded way of saying I think a soft landing is a bit unlikely because the Fed may have to err, uh, may have to err on that side. But we'll, you know, we'll really have to have to see. Uh, I think that one of the things that has become clear is that Fed forecasts uh, in the recent past looked more like spreadsheet economics. You know, the idea that we would have a much lower inflation rate without raising unemployment much uh, and with a very small hit to growth. You can type all those in a spreadsheet, but it's hard to imagine an actual economy in equilibrium with all those values. And I think the new Fed discussion gets at that. And I think that's what Wall Street picked up on. And I think it's exactly right. And it really is a nice way of drawing out the themes in the book. And I, as a teacher in recent years, before this episode, I used to lament that students really didn't want to understand this because inflation wasn't part of the lexicon. Well, it is. And so it's a teachable <laughs> moment. Yeah, I, I think you're right. There are a few points you made that maybe are worth dwelling on a bit that, um, as you pointed out, um, Greenspan saying in years past that People were not talking about inflation. If, if people aren't talking about inflation, it's not a problem. It's probably worth remembering that you have to go back to Paul Volcker in the late 70s, early 80s, before the Fed was in the situation they're in now, where inflation, in fact, was high, and they needed to take action to bring it down. So we don't really have a lot of precedents, right, that we can look at and we say, well, you know, the last three times this happened, the following was the result. They're kind of in, in uncharted waters. 
I, I, I think it is interesting. We, we talk about this in, in the book, particularly in the update to the, um, the principles text, the eighth edition principles text, that the Fed really changed its procedure in August 2020. They had the so-called new monetary strategy. And it wasn't perfectly clear at the time, but I think it now is fairly evident that one of the things they backed away from was a policy that they had had essentially dating back to Volcker in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. And that is attempting to preempt inflation where they would sort of look for early signs that inflation might be accelerating and, uh, and preempt it. And it made a certain amount of sense maybe to say that they didn't need to worry about that so much because we'd had such a long period of low inflation. But as you pointed out, um, it ended up costing them some credibility because inflation began to accelerate in 2021. They didn't have much um, of a response, partly because they thought that it might be transitory caused by supply shocks and so on. But that loss of credibility to some extent uh, may make it harder now to actually bring it down. Well, I agree with that, Tony, because uh, think about it. If you go for the handoff from Volcker to Greenspan, Greenspan actually took his time getting inflation all the way down toward 2%. And to remind everybody listening, you know, things like 2% don't come on stone tablets. So there was a view from um, a, a commission chaired by Michael Boskin, who is a professor of economics at Stanford, many other economists on the commission, that something like 2%, given the way we measure price deflators in the country, is close to price stability. But Greenspan, of course, never had a specific number in mind, and he took his time. He had abundant credibility and could draw on the well of Volcker's credibility. So he was able to do that. When I mentioned before that the Fed might overshoot, the Fed's not sitting on a big well of credibility with politicians, with Wall Street, with the public. And so I worry that a promise of a soft landing, which possible, is quite unlikely. There was one other point um, that I would like to get your response to. And that is that both um, Powell and most of the other members of the Federal Open Market Committee have talked a lot about the macroeconomic data. And they're saying, well, we're watching very closely what happens to inflation between meetings. And we're looking at such things as what's happening to employment and so on, which I thought was a little curious for a couple of reasons. One is that there can be a lot of what statisticians would say is noise in the inflation data. We have a blip down, a blip up, and it's not clear that it's meaningful. The other is that some of those series, particularly employment, get revised a lot. That, you know, as we, we talk at some length in the book, the Bureau of Labor Statistics uh, releases a monthly employment report that's partly based on a survey of households where they ask people about their employment status and partly based on, or rather has a separate measure that's based on looking at a survey of firms and saying, how many people do you have on your, on your payroll? And it's that second, the, the, the payroll series, sometimes called the establishment series, that economists and policymakers tend to look at the most. And it's one that tends to be emphasized in media stories. But that series gets revised a lot because new data comes in over time. In fact, we have a, a striking figure in the book where we look at what happened in 2008, 2009, where 
the declines in employment during that period of the financial crisis and the, the Great Recession didn't look too bad initially. But then once all the data had been compiled, they looked really horrible. So there's that problem of um, looking too much, uh, allowing your decisions, you the Fed's decisions to be based on incoming data. The other is, as you mentioned that, and we talk about in the book, that monetary policy has this long lag. So the things that have already been done, right? Because the Fed raises the, the target for the federal funds rate, other interest rates tend to increase the, the, the interest rate on home mortgage loans, for instance, is the highest it's been since 2008. But that also takes a while, that increase in mortgage interest rates takes a while to affect people's behavior. You know, if you've moved from one city to another and you have to buy a new house, or you've already sold your house and you have to buy a new house, you may not be as responsive to the fact that, oh, my mortgage payment's gonna be higher than I thought it was gonna be. But over time, people will be. People who haven't yet made their decision will say, oh, you know, I, I thought we could buy a house, but I'm looking at what the payments would be. I, I can't do it. And that then has to cycle through to the, the builders who, you know, their orders start to fall off and they have to decide, you know, do we start laying people off? Do we cut back our orders for plywood and drywall and whatever? And so it takes months, perhaps a year or longer. And so that's another reason why if you're, if you're, if you're the Fed and you're really looking at what's happening to inflation numbers now, employment numbers and so on, you may not really be catching the full effects of what you've already done, right? They had a meeting in the end of July, the next meeting is at the end, this is the Federal Open Market Committee meeting at the end of September, but we really won't know for quite a while what the effects of that July increase are. So do you think they're making a mistake by being as data-driven as they, as they are? Well, obviously at some level, they need to watch the data, that's obvious. But I think they need to work a little harder in explaining the narrative of, of how they see the economy. What indicators specifically are they looking at? For example, the labor market still looks fairly tight. And you know, what, one of the reasons, as I said before, that the stock market had a bad day, the day of the Jackson Hole speech, is I think the market hadn't priced in that we are going to have to tighten financial conditions for the Fed to do its job. And that means the stock market has to go down. And mechanically, that's going to happen from either recession fears or higher discount rates. Uh, but you know, all of those things are there. So I think being data driven is too simple an answer for the Fed. A little easier for a Fed that has a big wellspring of credibility, which is why we emphasize that so much in the book. But very hard for this Fed. There's another uh, aspect of Fed policy I thought we could talk about. One that students are very interested in, and that has to do with cryptocurrency or digital currency. And you know, as we talk about in the book, the, the initial uh, talked about, widely thought about uh, cryptocurrency was of course Bitcoin. And the idea initially was that you would have some Bitcoin in your wallet and you would walk into the supermarket and you would buy your milk and, and vegetables and fruit and whatever. And you go to the register and you would you would, you would pay with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin would be a medium of exchange as economists call it, some, something that's used in buying and selling. That didn't happen, right? Because uh, as I, I checked this morning, one Bitcoin is now worth $20,000. 
it was up of over a thousand dollars from yesterday. So those kinds of fluctuations in the value of Bitcoin meant that it can't be used as a medium of exchange. We we talk in the book about how it's become something like gold in the sense of being an asset that people speculate in. Maybe they hope that it'll go one way when the stock market goes another way. There there has been some attempt at so-called stable coins so that they would have a, a one dollar per stable coin relationship that would be constant tether and dm i think are the two that are most widely used and the idea is that the private companies that issued them would have financial assets to back them up so that they could always redeem for a dollar a um, a unit of, of tether or dm there have been some problems with that that um, have caused stable coins not to be widely used so some people who think digital currency is very important have said, well, maybe there's a role for the Fed, that maybe the Fed should begin issuing a digital currency. Um, and the, the jargon of this, because economists love acronyms, is CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency. So what do you think? Should the Fed begin issuing uh, a digital currency? And maybe a, a wider point, are cryptocurrencies or digital currencies likely to be a big part of the financial system going forward, or are they going to kind of be the, the small part that they are now? Well, it's a great question, Tony. I'll, I'll start with the last part because it's probably the entry point for thinking about uh, digital currencies. You know, Bitcoin, which has captured much of the public imagination, is, I think, as you say, it's it's a speculative asset. At least gold, you can make a necklace out of if you wanted. You can do that with, with Bitcoin. And heck, you might even lose it if you, you know, lose your key. I suppose it's useful in uh, extortion attempts or something like that, but it hasn't been that useful in what we would talk about in the book as a medium of exchange. The entry point, it seems to me, for this world is the distributed ledger aspect of crypto for payments. That is a big idea. And, and basically, most financial institutions and all central banks are taking a look at that. So that, that's a real thing. Uh, and then the question is, could you take that architecture, if you will, for distributed ledgers and use it to think about currencies? And as you said, the private sector has done this. You could imagine a privately backed system. Uh, there have been some stumblings of those. But, you know, query, is that something that uh, regulation and monitoring could fix? Just like, you know, private banks have to manage assets and liabilities. They are regulated. They hold capital. There are lots of ways we try to deal with this. But to the, the CBDC point, uh, which I guess is uh, CBD plus C, so it's a little <laughs> jazzy. Um, I, I'm a nerd. So one of my favorite television shows is the game show Jeopardy. So the way I think about this, if CBDC is the answer, what's the question? So in terms of what the question is, um, it's not clear. If the answer is, couldn't the Fed do everything more cheaply than the private sector? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think we want the Fed doing all payments that the private sector is currently doing. And if we think we have a competition problem in the private sector, just fix that. I don't think that's a reason in and of itself. Uh, to me, there are private versions. They could be improved upon. I don't have any reason to suspect the market isn't uh, competitive there. Two concerns about CBDCs were raised recently by Neil Kashkari, who's the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Minneapolis, are you know, privacy-type 
issues for the Fed running this. And by the way, do you want an easy mechanism for a central bank to implement negative interest rates? Now, I know now that we're talking about inflation and higher interest rates, maybe people forgot. But remember, we spent a while now talking about negative interest rates, which were uh, covering much of the world uh, until at least quite recently. So I, I think this is a topic for conversation. I think the Fed's right to be working on it. There's obvious geopolitical issues too. Is China going to do this before we do it and so on? But I don't see this as one with an easy answer or that the CBDC is some way of you know, completely revolutionizing the payment system. What do you think? Yeah, I think you make good points, particularly um, some of the people who have been pushing the Fed to issue digital currency think of it as a way in which individuals and small businesses would be able to have accounts with the Fed, because of course, right now you have to be a bank or a financial firm or a government entity. And that's something I think that the Fed is very reluctant to get into because it's sort of a whole nother thing from monetary policy and bank regulation and so on, the things that they are familiar with. They'd have to staff up and you know, to deal with individuals having accounts, it, 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 would, it would be, um, quite a, a big thing to do. I guess what one thing I was thinking is that a lot of, we've all become more digital in a broader sense in recent years. I mean, I was thinking the other day that, that probably in the last 12 months, I doubt that I've actually used paper currency or coins more than you know maybe 10 times. I almost never do it. it it's gotten to the point where even if I'm buying like a bottle of water in a convenience store, I'll use my my credit card and then I, I pay my credit card online and I pay most of my bills. So I rarely write a paper check anymore because I can pay most of my bills through my bank. And in fact, like utility bills and things like that, I just have set up that it comes directly out of my bank account. I don't even have to do anything. So in that sense, we become digital and we may, in a sense, it sort of gets back to your, your point about, you know, what is digital currency the solution to that if in effect we are moving away from paper currency and paper checks and so on already, then the, um, the benefits that people might've seen 10 or 15 years ago before we had done that are probably um, less today than they were back then. Okay, Glenn, another point that a lot of students are interested in, the, the US labor market, as we talked about earlier, has been extremely strong lately that we've seen big increases in employment through the um, payroll or establishment series, although we have not seen much increase in output. And so if you put those two things together, a lot more employment, not much output, you find as we actually see in the statistics that the first half of this year, there's been a big decrease in productivity. There's been some talk about, is that connected with work from home? Right, because we know that there are some firms who are in kind of a, a, a struggle with their employees who've gotten used to working from home and, and some managers want people to come back into the office five days a week and some people don't want to do that. So I guess the question is, is work from home something that is likely to fade back to what it was pre-pandemic? Do you think it's connected at all with productivity? Do you think, should we be worried about the fact that we've had these negative movements in productivity through the first half of 2022? Well, I think we should be worried and it gives us a chance to really think through how the labor market works in the long run and in the short run. You know, the phenomenon the newspapers talk about of 
quiet quitting and and using working at home, you know, just as a reason to perhaps do your job at the bare minimum. I'm sure there's some of that going on, but I think there's there's two things about productivity. You know, one is the technological innovations that can make people more productive, but then complementing technology is always organizational innovation. How do we change the structure of firms to allow those technologies to work? The idea of disrupting where you work has sort of broken that a little bit. Um, research by economists like Nick Bloom at Stanford and others, you know, have been looking to what can we really learn? What, what are the sources of productivity changes in some of these organizational redesigns? And the jury's still out. We don't know, for example, when we compare working at home versus the office, are we looking at selection? That is the kind of people who choose to work at home are different than the people working at the office? Are we looking at a within effect from the same person making a change? So we, we don't really know enough, I think, at the moment. To me, the long run factors that are, are driving concern are the same as they have been. Demography, you know, what's gonna happen to the labor force? The very poor labor force participation rate in the United States, particularly among men, relative to uh, to our peers. And COVID, the fact that so many people left the labor force related to COVID, whether it's long COVID, frustration with the reservation wage, whatever it is, they haven't really come back. So that's caused the labor market to remain fairly tight, which is part of this conundrum we talked about earlier for the Federal Reserve. At the same time, it could look like the labor market is somewhat uh, less than healthy. So I think when we get the answers to those long run questions, it'll help us figure out the short run. Yeah, very good. Uh, that is a topic I think we'll probably come back to on later podcasts. It's a very interesting one. So just a reminder to listeners that this podcast is available on iTunes. So if you'd like, you can subscribe and make us part of your podcast feed. Please also keep checking our blog, Hubbard O'Brien Economics, all one word, dot com, we periodically post new content. You can subscribe to the blog to receive email alerts about new posts. We also have a Twitter account, which you can find by searching on the site for Hubbard O'Brien Economics. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard and O'Brien Economics podcast. And we hope that you have a good fall semester.